kind of compulsion to write just snuck back in. All, all my upper mind was forbidding it and, and thinking that, you know, only being George Eliot or T.H. Lawrence was worth it, but it, it just persisted. <laughs> Hello writers! Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. If you want to write domestic fiction, I cannot recommend reading Tessa Hadley, or indeed listening to her here, enough. Tessa, who has been long-listed twice for what is now the Women's Prize and who the Washington Post called one of the greatest stylists alive, wrote four failed novels throughout her 30s and was finally published aged 46 with accidents in the home. She has now written eight novels and is one of the modern masters of domestic fiction, burrowing into the complex inner lives of middle-aged women and the clashes between them, their feelings and the outer world. They are books of enormous sensitivity, but also, as Tessa says here, born of a lot of control and labour. And while Tessa is clear about how compelled she is to write, she is also keen to dispel the idea that it is in any way easy. I'm a slow and painful writer, writing in a knot of constipation, she says. I find her story as riveting as her writing. She worked away for years on what she later realised were all the wrong sorts of things for her, books about big political events when really she was interested in things closer to home. I find her fascinating on how she kept going, even when someone told her nobody wants to read stories about people in their 40s, and how writing is learning to hear what you sound like in readers' minds. This episode of Write Off is sponsored by The Novelry. The Novelry is one of the world's best-loved writing schools, with more five-star reviews on Trustpilot than any other. With one-to-one coaching from best-selling authors, feedback from publishing editors, and step-by-step daily lessons to create, write, and complete your book. On the classic Storytelling Foundation course, you'll build your story idea, looking at the ingredients of the best-selling novels of all time to come up with a story that's uniquely yours. On the 90-day novel course, you'll get that first draft done fast with step-by-step daily guidance and one-to-one coaching from a published author. On the big edit, you'll work with a publishing editor to polish the second draft and beyond, taking the manuscript to publishing standard. The Novelry offers courses, coaching and community, a three-pronged approach to write and finish your novel. I'd just like to add that I myself have actually just started one of their courses and it's such a wonderful community, really fun, really engaged. I highly recommend it. Make this your year. Sign up at thenovelry.com today and discover the courses so many writers describe as life-changing. So let's listen to Tessa. I did write lots of stories in that lovely innocence when you, you, you're not concerned with being published. I, I do seem to remember that weirdly some, the guitar player in my dad's jazz band knew some publisher and took some of my stories to the publisher who, of course, refused them. You know, I mean, they were silly. They were, they, you know, they were just children's stories. There, there are different kinds of failure when you're a child. What I do remember is the sensation of the writing not being good enough because... I knew the excitement of reading and I knew that whatever that chemistry was that happened on the page wasn't happening. And, and it's, I've 
talked about this a little bit recently, I, I sort of suddenly it clicked with me that the real source of fiction making was in the games I played with other girls, little, my odd little clique of friends, and that that's where storytelling comes from. And that didn't feel unsatisfactory. That felt very rich and full and we lived inside it. Whereas the words on the page, I, I remember a funny thing where I knew that writers wrote and then corrected and rewrote. But as a child, you, you don't know why you would do that. You just say something once. But I remember actually writing and then deliberately crossing out some words and putting different words, not because I really thought they were any better, but because I thought that's what you do. So those are <laughs> memories from child writing. And then I stopped when I went to university, like lots of people do, and felt humbled, if not abased, and, and, and was also busy becoming a reader, a full, rich reader. Um, so I didn't do it then. And, and there was some sense of being crushed, but not, I'm not complaining about it. That's exactly what one ought to feel. And then I did come back to it gradually in my 20s, really, was when I started writing again. OK. And I know you had you had your first child quite young, didn't you? I think you were 24. Yeah. What was what was that like? I think you're a teacher at this point. What was it like having having children at this point? And just thinking about all that pram in the hall stuff, whether you felt in some way you just described feeling sort of crushed. I wonder whether that felt additionally crushing in, in to your writing at that point or whether whether you started writing and had sort of fun with it anyway it it's I mean it does feel like describing something from history now it <laughs> my I didn't come out from university even though I, I sort of did well and was at Cambridge but I, sh I should have had a sense of a career an ambition I should have thought I I'm going to be a writer or I'm going to be a journalist I, I can't express to you how sort of private my ambitions were and I think my ambitions were much more to be um to the writing thing was slightly in abeyance and I wanted to have children and I wanted that baby and and also I had to add into the picture slightly less nobly um I was the world's worst school teacher I was failing so miserably and discovering that it so wasn't for me it's I mean they are still my total heroes in the world the wonderful school teachers upon whom we all rely all of us have got teachers who've opened our eyes and our minds um it's just the best job but I, it, I'm too lazy and too selfish and it was too hard so I was having the most miserable year of school teaching so even having a baby was easier than that so even at the worst <laughs> times at four in the morning walking up and down with my little boy and sort of at a total loss I would think it's at least it's better than teaching so that was that helped I recommend that as a sort of routine <laughs> to motherhood and then and then the 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 ambition to write ambition isn't is isn't even the right word, the kind of compulsion to write just snuck back in. All, all my upper mind was forbidding it and, and thinking that, you know, only being George Eliot or D.H. Lawrence was worth it, but it, it just persisted. And there was a funny little thing where a friend of a friend, I mean, we didn't know writery people at all, but a friend of a friend had was a school teacher actually and had been commissioned to write children's books and he didn't have time or didn't want to do it and my husband and I did it and that really was when when my first baby was small and I snatched the time we we did research on old folktales and then retold them these these are published books we had two lovely books of folktales published by Cambridge University Press 
really it was not to our credit and when we pro proposed a third one they didn't even want it it wasn't it was like it wasn't a start to my writing career it was almost like a freakish thing but while we were doing those stories I think I had one of those moments of intimation when I thought oh I I can do this that that didn't last but it, it was enough <laughs> it was I, I had some sense of knowing how to put words together we were just taking a folktale and then retelling it and I now find slightly irritating sort of style but anyway that was so that was the first and then and then starting to put down little bits of the life around me which was always what I'd wanted to read and then what I wanted to write um but then the terrible years of failing to do that really well, that's it's interesting that you've said, you know, the first things when you really got back into it, that you started to put down were things about life around you, because I know you actually went when you when you wrote these novels that sort of mm. sat and didn't get published. They weren't about that at all, were they? The, these no. were about completely other things. Tell, tell some us were, some about were and some weren't. They varied in my <laughs> struggles because you're, you're absolutely right. Somewhere I should have always known that the right subject was what's around me. And I think that I, I remember very, very early scraps that were about a concert I'd been to or um, some people living in a flat and they were just scraps, they weren't even stories. Um, but then I think I was under the influence of a, a part of, I was reading partly under the influence of certain friends, a group of friends who rather despised I have to say male friends who despised <laughs> the domestic and, and thought that was just, you know, remember one of them saying about Nadine Gordimer, even something like, um, what do you say? Who wants to read about people sweating? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they, they wanted to, they were, they were reading political books. Um, Brecht, lots of Brecht. He was a bit of a presiding genius and then wonderful Turkish writer, though I haven't revisited him, for a long time, Yasha Kamal, um, Ismail Kadari from the Balk, from Albania, isn't he? Yes, all the Balkans. Anyway, anyway, those world writers with big stories to tell of North and South cultural clash. I mean, all the things that I'm still passionately interested in and want to read about, but like I am the least equipped person in the world to write about. So, so there was there was a sort of uneasy meeting of, of my reading and my writing at that point and it was discovering a few writers that just I they were so convincing to me it was Aideen Gordon among them although she also complicated things because she is a big world political writer but Alice Munro what a breakthrough reading mm. people who I was so knew they were great I didn't care what anybody else or those men who were influencing me thought I knew she was great. And there she was writing about buying a tin of tomatoes at the shop or <laughs> frosting a cake or whatever. So that, that, that there eventually came a sort of doorway into yes. being able to write about the small things that I, I mean, you've been you've been compared to um Alice Munro by several people. And Anne Enright said two writers who would rather be wise than nice, she said. <laughs> That's such a lovely I, yes. I have this wonderful theory about being compared to people, of course. I can't tell you how beautiful that is. 
<clears throat> I think if you mention writers enough and say to everyone, I love Alice Munro, I love Elizabeth Byrne, sooner or later <laughs> someone compares you to them. It's wonderful. So seed your talk with all the writers you want to be compared okay. to. Okay. I mean, I love Notice. the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's, of course, it's more than that because I learned to write reading Alice Munro. In fact, it's funny, yeah. funny. I should, I've just, I think I had a, a period just recently where I'd overread her. I mean, I literally know lots of the stories, not, not off by heart, but I know every sentence. I'm nothing's going to surprise me. And, th and that's too much. You shouldn't read like that. Or you maybe it's all right for a bit. And I've given her a rest. I haven't read her very much. And I've just picked her up again. And it's lovely. It's all spring fresh again. And I'm loving it all over again. <laughs> Well, just going back a little bit to to the ones before the mm. Munro et al. influences. Um, so what were you writing about? You were being influenced by these friends and these readers with these sort of big, grand geopolitical yeah. plans. What sort of books? I mean, we, you, I've interviewed you before and I, and I remember you talking about things like Welsh mining strikes and yeah. French anarchists. And, can you tell me a little bit about yeah. those books, okay. the ones that didn't make it? Yeah. We moved to Cardiff and we were there at the time of the 1984-85 miners' strike and we, the whole of South Wales was very galvanised, almost wholly in support of that strike. We saw it as make or break and I guess it was, although in retrospect it seems you know, deliberately promoted by the Thatcher government in order to break the unions and so on and so forth. It was a moving story amazing story there should be a novel of it but of course it should be told by somebody who knows more about it than me I didn't I didn't try to be to my own credit and I didn't try to write from the point of view of minors or anything like that I I sort of I think I I mean I probably was trying out a terrain that later I would you know that that was my became my terrain later I I was writing about bourgeois leftist intelligentsia in Cardiff and I think I I really can't remember it very well but I, I I'm sh I know I had a charismatic Welsh MP who may have been loosely based on Kim Howells I don't know if people remember Kim but he was a bit of a, a leading figure in you know an MP but also in the involved with the NUM at the time so I I wasn't writing I wasn't literally describing you know the dirt at the coalface. I was I was trying to address that that intersection of living politics and activism with dailiness, I suppose. And I was just failing to do that somehow. I somehow I was well. I think the failure wasn't even exactly in the subject matter. I'll come back to the French anarchists in a minute. It wasn't exactly in the subject matter. It was in a kind of nervous obedience to the subject matter I hadn't there is some gesture you have to make in writing at some point where you seize your subject and you feel you have authority over it and that was what was lacking I I was I was trying to be a good girl and I was writing dutifully about taking positions that I thought were the right positions to take and that that isn't how you produce good writing so that's my did, memory of that book did you know when you were writing this book and others did you know that it wasn't very good were you enjoying it that's the really is the 64 million dollar question as <laughs> say ah uh, I mean writers 
probably all their lives sit there trying to work out from their own feelings whether something is good or not. And what you know is that it, that is so not straightforward that you can have a brilliant day and feel you're good, but later it will turn out that that was fake, that was wrong. And you can struggle and write something rather laboriously, not feeling confident about it, which turns out later to, to, to be true. But, but maybe deep down you have a sense that a project is alive but so hard because so much is invested in it, so much is invested in this novel. So I, I, what I remember at the time is lots of doubt, much more doubt than you, it sounds like. I, I, was, not, I, I was full of doubt and had very little, um, I had ambition, I think, but it was a rightly ambition rather than a publishing ambition I, I can't quite explain that it wasn't pragmatic I, I didn't even really to be honest know much about publishing or how to get something published um, and I was haunted by a sense that it was not alive that it was there was something dead and then I but I had a hope that all writers felt like that and it would turn out it was all right that's how I got back down to it every day in the hope that although it disappointed me in some sense it didn't fly, and yet I, I had a hope that that was all right. That's what everyone feels, and I think I, I think I do at least know now when something is flying. You have some sense that it has its own energy and that it lifts you up as you mm. get the next bit and put the next bit in place, and you have a kind of joy in opening it up. Mm. So I hope that, yeah. I, I'm better at that. And and were you sort of doing this in secret? I mean, were you embarrassed by it in some way? Or were you showing friends and your husband? Were they supportive? No, I never showed my husband. I showed him some scrap incredibly early on. And he said something totally forbidding, like, oh, I don't think you can do that. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> no, God. I know. So I've never shown him anything again. He reads them when they're finished. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks about them now. Um, so that was fine. It just didn't show him. I, I did show them to a couple of friends, um, uh, probably when they were finished, I think, not as I was going along. And um, I was deeply embarrassed by it. I had to sort of fess up to it in as far as I had to do some things like at some point when I had two babies I did get a childminder who looked after one of my little boys some afternoons for a couple of hours so I could do some so I, I sort of had to had to say what I was doing but it was humiliating because I I wasn't at all convinced that it would come to anything um, so I talked about it as little as possible really <laughs> I also had bits of teaching and I would use them as a kind of cover no, it was not. Oh, okay. It wasn't a glorious, fine thing. It was a rather furtive and shaming thing. And the, what, what impelled me to keep going was much more a, a sense that I must than a sense of kind of, oh, no, I love doing this. Mm. I must. What, what does that I, I, I know this is difficult to answer, but what do you think that means, a sense that you must? just Does that mean that something inside you needed to come out? or Such a mystery, isn't it? Because why did I feel that about writing? I've often asked myself, 
I love paintings. I've never felt any need to paint. I just enjoy the paintings. Ditto with film. Why, when I read books, did at some very early age, why did I get inoculated with the need to make books of my own? And I can remember having that thought at, I think, 10 or 11. I, I remember thinking, I want to make books of my own. And I had a, even, I had a title which is so funny and so present. I know this is true. I'm very questioning of my memories, but I know this is true. I thought I will write a book called A Girl and Her Imagination. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and I, I never have, and I, I never will. It's not a great title, but it's a speaking phrase, isn't it? That I must, I have something there. I, I knew something. So I don't know why I had to, but what I know is, and this is just as true now, in some bizarre way, I don't feel I can be properly alive in my life unless I'm making stories. When I say out of it, I don't mean out of my autobiographical experience directly, but out of my world. Yes, making so meaning. Mm. So did those books, I mean, how many do you think there were, by the way, completed I think there were four. Four. But I can't remember what the others were. I vaguely, vaguely. Did yeah. they go off to agents? Um, they publishers? went. They met, I think a couple of them I might have sent to publishers, not knowing that you should send them to agents. And I would get one rejection letter, which I'm sure was just a standard slush pile rejection letter. And I would feel completely and utterly crushed and would never send it again. I didn't know that you were meant to send it to lots. I hadn't even got the, I, think, I must have had the writers and artists year, but mustn't I? Cause I must've got the addresses from somewhere, but I obviously didn't read it very attentively. <laughs> anyway, then I did send it to an agent once. I'm sure I've told you this story before. This is a nice self-satisfied story. I, I sent it to an agent called Gina Pollinger who was quite big at the time, or maybe I sent her some of my stories. So I suspect they were a bit better already than the, those first novels and she said she'd see me and I went to London amazing trip and went to visit her and I remember her funny little book piled office so this is probably in the 1980s I'm sure it was the 80s and um she sort of said well these are quite good these some of these stories and you should send them around it's exactly what I would say now you know send them into comp uh, maybe not competitions weren't such a big thing then but you know send them to magazines which did accept stories then and, and now I said, well, what magazine should I send them to? And I was at the time reading Alice Munro and Nadine Gordon. So I said, shall I, shall I send them to the New Yorker? And then I saw her and her assistant kind of look at each other like, who does she <laughs> think she is? <laughs> so that's a rather lovely memory because then I did eventually get stories into the New Yorker like a fairy yes. tale. But at that yes, time, I, I just caught the look. <laughs> Didn't know the happy ending, of course. Yes, yes, um, how amazing. So it was, a, there were little tiny thwarted bits of, mm. of putting myself out there. But for whatever reason, possibly, possibly, because somewhere I knew the books were not good enough but I don't know whether it was quite that. I think it was that. I, I didn't do it properly, obviously. Okay, so you were sort of haphazardly sending them out. And maybe that yeah. means that when you got the rejections back, they didn't, that didn't hurt as much. Oh, no, it as did. You weren't it, it was it terrible. Okay. It was still terrible. Okay. But, and, and I just, I sort of, even though they were silly rejections. I, later on, I remember my brother had a friend who was a publisher. 
friend's his friend's wife was a pub worked for I've forgotten she had a little publishing company of her own for a while and she she wrote something interesting about one of the books maybe the coal mining book and she said something like mm, what did she say something like nobody will want to read about people in their 40s oh my god that is right <laughs> oh, um, wow. they're too old but but she's at the same time she sort of said she sort of said I'm surprised no one's picked you up and that I do you know I think I think I had a real sense of that I had a sense that there was something odd about my writing that it was almost good do you know what I mean I I had a feeling that it wasn't just failing ordinarily that there was that it had something in it I really think I had an intimation of that but therefore it was failing hugely I can't quite explain yes. the difference between but it's I not just oh we've seen lots like there's sort of there was something almost wrong with it because its reach was ambitious or something and that's what in the end has proved your you know the thing that you are best known for is writing about these people in their 40s and what they yeah, do and actually actually since yeah. I interviewed you last I have turned 40 and so I feel that now I am part of this club of oh good people <laughs> are writing about us um but it's I mean it is really interesting that that's sort of what you were I guess criticized for and then that's turned out to be yeah your, your sort of yeah. trademark thing yeah um so okay so you you carried on you you carried on writing um sort of submitting and then in your late 30s you enrolled on a in a creative writing yeah. course I think at Bath didn't you yeah. and that sort of changed everything for you didn't yeah. it can, it can you explain really how did. yeah and it's why I'm a wholehearted believer in those courses while knowing how imperfect they sometimes are the strange ways they've changed the literary market, all of that, I, and how expensive they are as well, and that not everyone can do it. I still think they have democratised the world of publishing beyond belief. I do think that. Um, it, a friend suggested it to me, and I was, she actually had gone and looked at the course and then didn't get round to or didn't, it wasn't the right moment for her. And I sort of just followed in her footsteps. And I thought, I, I was full of, snobbishness about it I thought none of the writers I admire have ever been on a creative writing course what is this silly thing you can't teach writing but at the same time I thought I I kind of needed a make or break I thought I cannot go on doing this it's too agonizing just writing and failing I'll die because <laughs> I would have died um and I, it was, it was marvelous for me. And it, I, you can't teach anyone to write. It didn't teach me to write. There's, there, there is no toolkit. There's, there was nothing anyone said that turned a light in my head. It was something much more intangible and wonderful than that. It was, it was being in a community of writers who you didn't necessarily have to love what they wrote. It was just, it was just work a day for a start. I actually love being back in the world. I had been rather strangely secluded in my mothering and housewifing. Not, 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 you know, not quite as dreary as that sounds. I had lovely friends and dinner parties and party parties and all of that, all of that side of life. But still, it was, it was something a bit odd. And I was ashamed of myself when I thought about my women friends and especially slightly younger women friends with what careers doing good in the world doing stuff I felt embarrassed by my own privacy and nothingness so <laughs> lovely to be out in the world again lovely actually to the one thing I've always been hugely confident about is 
critical writing. I, I've always been a very confident critic. And, and so being in a university and actually doing critical reading alongside the writing stuff, I think that, was, that gave me my confidence back. And I enjoyed that so much. And mm. I now think what I, hmm, I'll, I'll come back to the course, but at the end of it, I still didn't really have a publishable book. And I did a PhD, a literary PhD instead, and did some, and got a job on the, in the university teaching as much literature as creative writing at first. And I now think that that PhD, which became a book on Henry James, I think that the rehearsing of authority in those sentences, which came to me naturally, I'm not saying it wasn't hard work, but I, I was comfortable. That was me. That was what I sounded like. That was how I thought. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And it was that rehearsal of authority. I, I didn't know this at the time, but I've worked it out since that gave me the authority actually in my fiction. I, I can imagine what anathema that sounds to many writers who feel the two kinds of writing are, you know, oil and water but that's never been like that for me I think there's a there's a there's a, a bleeding into each other and uh, so that I think was an important part of it I think that makes sense I remember um when I wrote my novel the novel that didn't end up being published but my husband I had just come off the back of a maternity leave and my husband said oh well just just do the creative writing don't do anything else because you always wanted to do this mm. and I said you know what I think I need to do a bit of journalism as well because yeah. I feel that if I put all, it's not putting all my eggs in one basket, but I feel that the one aids the other somehow yeah. that I'm out yeah. living yeah. and writing and it's not, you know, yeah. yes, that somehow that kind of selfhood and authority is revived by doing these other things. Absolutely. And then when I come to the writing, I have something to give it. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. Mm. Um, anyway, sorry, do carry on. So you're doing that. your so, it's so nice to hear you say that because I've, it took me a while to to see it, what was so obvious, but but yeah, I think it's true. I don't think it's true for all writers, but I think it's true for you and true for me, and there are others mm. out there. But equal, equally, writing for the workshops what was just so useful, partly because it takes away some of that humiliating furtiveness. You've got to do this for Thursday. It's an assignment. I have to do my work for the class. It kind of just takes, knocks the edges off. And then something miraculous happens when instead of an abstract audience of sort of Tolstoy, George Eliot and Brecht sitting out there thinking that sentence she's written isn't very good. You, you have Ron and Laurie and Debbie on Thursday mm. and you're writing for their ears or their eyes or their minds and you you can hear what you sound like with a new closeness and urgency and it I mean I, I more and more think that learning to write is as much that as it is anything else it's hearing what you sound like in another in other minds in your readers minds 
mm. and to their eye. And so that, it just seemed to, I could feel it lifting my sentences. It was marvellous. And also, mm. of course, competition. Writing is competitive. The truth mm -hmm. is, you you think, am I really not as good as these? I, I can do better than that. And then you do, you write better. And they're all doing the same. It's, it's, it's you know, it doesn't have, it wasn't horrible. It was a, it was, Love, we were also mutually supportive, but under that mutual supportiveness, there was also competition, yes. of course, yeah. and that was good. And I did, it was the, the actual process of writing a novel, though that novel was a bit of a hybrid. I think of it all as half being like the novels I, that had failed before and, and having in it a sort of emergent thing that probably sounded like what I then come to sound like later. Um, it was a hybrid, it was an ugly, unborn thing, but still it was the best thing. And I had passages in it where I had felt free and authoritative. And so this wasn't, the novel you were writing on your course was not Accidents in the no, Home, which was your first published novel. No, there's, okay. then there's this okay. sort of miracle where I do this PhD, I go on writing some short stories and things. I can't remember the exact timing. I get a job at the university. So the, remember, I am very lazy and sort of that selfish person who couldn't be a school teacher. But somehow, <laughs> at the same time, I write the, the Henry James book. I teach full time. I actually have four kids at home because my younger stepson came to live with us. Uh, or as it, maybe he wasn't exactly at home all that time but he effectively had four children at home and I wrote accidents in the home this is unimaginable to me now I, I don't really work like that but it was one of those moments in life when everything came together and the energy appeared and the stamina appeared mm. to, to do that for a short while anyway and yeah and so I and wrote it you... actually in my first year I think it was it in my first years of teaching I wrote accidents in the home yeah and what did it feel like when you then got an agent and a publishing deal with Accidents in the Home? What, what was that like for you well, after just, all of that? I mean, it was the, the huge life transforming event of my life, really. It, it felt just marvellous. Yeah. I mean, I think I, coming back to that thing of whether one knows a book is a failure, I, I can remember writing it. I can remember certain passages of writing. And I, I, it was as if a gate gave way and a great flood of perception that felt playful. It felt like that childhood play, as if it was bottomless. Oh my God, I know all this. I, I know, I know what to put, what to see. I know what they're feeling. I know what they do and it's wicked. Oh, and then they do that. It was this, this sort of flood was unleashed and it was lovely. So I knew while I was writing it, that I'd got to a new place that felt different. I'd probably already felt it in a few short stories, first of all. And in fact, of course, Accidents in the Home is a series of short stories that are connected together by plot, actually, by, you know, by being about the same people in chronological mm. order. But they effectively, each chapter, apart from, I think, the last, works as a self-contained story. So mm -hmm. I, I got that sprung tension of the story I didn't have the confidence at that point it took me a long time to for a fully proportioned novel but, and then I, I showed it to a, a colleague who was himself a published writer so this sort of thing was happening suddenly I knew people who were professional writers 
and he showed it to his agent, Carolyn Dorney, who's still my agent now. And then I met her at dinner, or perhaps I met her at dinner first, and then she took my manuscript. Still was a manuscript in those days, though written on a on a computer, I think. Yeah, yeah, not a typewriter, written on a computer, but printed out and given to her. And um, then she contacted me and said she'd like to take me on. And then she phoned me to say that Cape had bought the book and I actually phoned my best friend, the one who had, has been with me on all my writing journey. And uh, I said to her what had happened. And she said, oh, that changes everything. And it, it does, <laughs> it did. Well, and she, and she was right. And I mean, I suppose sometimes it's, um, it's, it's not, you know, sometimes it's a little dangerous for writers to think at that point that, you know, it changes absolutely yeah. everything because for many yeah. it doesn't. And it's, you know, it's, it carries on being a slog. But obviously, you know, many of your books have been lauded since that very first one. I didn't even know that I, but by the way, feeling that I knew what I was doing and then being published did not mean I, I, I was amazed to be reviewed. I thought I probably because I had a realistic sense then particularly coming off the writing course of what most people's careers were that you know you mm. you were lucky if you were published locally by a local press and so on and I was I was prepared for that I was prepared for that and I I was amazed when the book was reviewed and so on and so forth so it wasn't that I then thought oh well that's all right I'm going to make a living as a writer or anything like that not at all <laughs> I, I was truly I was modest in my you know I I had a modest sense of of what would come and I and it, not, yes I wouldn't have imagined I would be as lucky as I have been uh, I, well I mean that, that first book was actually long listed for the Guardian First Book Award wasn't it and I think it was accompanied by a few reviews that that kind of hailed you as this very very um love incredible Julie, new talent. Julie Myerson wrote me a most lovely review which yes. I would be eternally grateful for yeah yes and and um I'm really interested to know, just returning to that thing you said earlier about um, being a child and not realising that people edited that, you know, this mm. sort of magic that came from their mm. imagination. Do you and did you in that first book edit a lot? And was that, you know, you just mentioned, you know, how you felt the sort of well open up of mm. all these things that you knew and they just sort of came. Was it a struggle then to edit those sort of magic happenings? No, I think I've always been actually a very, very controlling writer. And I don't, I'm not, I don't edit hugely in the sense that I know a lot of people write a very, very thin first draft. Lots of, like Alice Munro, I've got a feeling. I don't quite know what she does, but I, I am writing in a slightly constipated knot all the time, except in those wonderful moments when the gates do open. And I can remember that with a few bits of accidents in the home, but... Mm, no, that is not the, that is by no means the whole story. Those are the little blissful passages. No, so I'm a really slow and painful writer, and all one's work, one's labor, one's ugly, fraught labor is to make the sentences read as if they flowed out from you effortlessly, but mm. you know, under the surface, the feet are paddling away. So I'm, I'm not, I, I do edit and I hugely, but actually, not, not not big swathes of editing so much, although mm, that too, but, but as it's written, the paragraph takes ages. And then, and then as well, when, when let's say a chapter's finished or whatever, then I will also be rereading it, rereading it, rereading it, taking this out, putting that there, 
thinking there's a beat missing here. So yeah, I'm I'm a really Broiderer. It's interesting because um, I have a quote here actually from the judges of the Wyndham Campbell Prize, which you won in 2016, that says, your writing brilliantly illuminates ordinary lives with extraordinary prose that is superbly controlled. And then it goes on to say lots of other complimentary yeah. things, but no, I, I, I really I... noted that. And I was going to ask you about that anyway, this sort of controlled yeah. sense, because it doesn't yeah. feel, in your words, constipated to read. But um, I think it is, you know, it is a restrained kind of writing with yeah. this... Um, and yeah. it's interesting to hear that you write it that way also. Yeah, I do. And I'm, I'm putting a semicolon in and then I'm taking it out and putting a full stop. I mean, I now can't <laughs> imagine writing on a typewriter. Of course, I, I would have just trained my brain differently. I would have a different technique. I'd be doing a certain amount. I'd probably be writing by hand. But I know. Did I? Yes, I did. I did. Those early novels were handwritten and then typed up because you can't make enough changes on a typewriter. But now my brain is totally adapted to the lovely fluidity of working on the screen, which is blissful to me, where you can just go on and on moving stuff and you don't end up with an unreadable blackened page of, of inky writing. Yes. That, yeah. that must dictate a very different mind process but I don't think it's a bad one or I, I'm sure it isn't a good one either because all the evidence is people have written sublimely in every way but but I do love that flexibility of going on and on changing and fiddling. Mm. I know you said in the past it took you a while to work out what you wanted to write um, not just the subject matter but the voice mm. and Accidents in the Home which we've mentioned is your first book is very much about female yearning as are many of your books and particularly your latest free love and both these books feature middle-aged women who feel in some way dissatisfied or in some cases sort of suddenly realize that they were dissatisfied when they didn't know it and end up kind of bulldozing their lives mm. where there are the nice lives to attain something mm. quite intangible I wanted to read a little bit from free love and then just talk a little bit about where this where this comes from this 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 um okay. interest of yours this is one of my favorite passages from free love which is such a wonderful book and this is about the main character um phyllis who's in her home at this point with a with a young male guest she'd begun joking recently about becoming an old woman she'd pictured herself sliding across serenely into middle age fulfilled and busy with her house and her hobbies. But all this cheerful resignation she recognized now had been a sham, mere self-deception. It hadn't seriously occurred to her in her deeper awareness that anything had changed or must ever change. She'd taken for granted that at her core, her sexual self would continue forever, a nugget of radioactive material charged with its power, irreducible. It's a, it's a lovely passage, I think, and, you know, has echoes and is echoed by many of your other works. What, it, what do you think it is about this sort of female yearning, this kind of turning point, and also the messiness of family life that interests mm. you so much? I mean, I guess it's just being female. It's the, it's the angle I come in at. The, the the novel of adultery was so interesting for so long because, and I think this is actually Tony Tanner, the critic who said this, it expresses perfectly the, the tension of, if you like, bourgeois existence between the rules, the law, the contract, and 
feeling, subjective experience. And there, there's Anna Karenina exactly at the intersection between those two things. There's Emma Bovary, et cetera, and um, Gwendolyn Harleth and so on. So, but in a way, the novel of adultery is, it, it's, you cannot get the same energies out of it anymore because in the end, if a woman nowadays really, really, really is unhappy with her husband, she can leave him and go off with her lover. So it's, it's that's changed women's writing. I, the, the old tragic pressure upon women ground in those millstones has gone because of sociology, because of change, because of historical change. So, I, I mean, I guess, and I guess that interests me. What is going to become of female sensibility with the new freedom? that we have after these millennia. That's a good subject, isn't it? Yes, it's a very good subject. And I think what is so interesting about your books is, um, is how they explore that, that very fine line between happiness and self-fulfillment where mm. they're not necessarily the same thing. And just because you can do something, is it the thing that's going to make you happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's right. And I mean, I, I really, really didn't mean free love to be a romantic story of a of an oppressed woman who finds freedom. It really isn't that. I'm just watching her doing what lots of women do did at that particular historical moment. I actually think we're doing it less now because I think the disenchant, although I'm not telling a disenchanted story either, I also rather love her doing it. And I feel there's a huge energy around what she did. But I think now, however many years it is later, um, 50 years later, there is a disenchantment with that rush to freedom, that rush to self-fulfillment, which was so romantic. It was so, I mean, romantic with a capital R. I mean, like, you know, Shelley and... Uh, Byron romantic it, it it was such a vision of total change and then and then and then you come up against the, the complexities that push back against it so that's where we are now I don't know where I was going with that sorry Francesca but it's, but it's more <laughs> no it's interesting really... subject about free, the, a, a post 1960s subject of freedom in in the west in yes and, yeah. Do you plan in your books? Were you surprised why, by some of the things Phyllis does? And of course I'm surprised and I don't, but I do plan. I do plan. It, free love was like a, a gift. It fell in my lap. I literally have three pages in a notebook where I write down the whole story. Really the oh, whole wow. story, nearly all of it, including the twist. Um, that is so not happening to me with my, with my new novel, which I'm really struggling with. And that we haven't talked about, but I should, you know, the struggle and the horribleness and the days of despair, and the, <laughs> they just carry on. They do. What do you do when those days come these days when okay. you have much practice at it? Yeah, I am more practiced at it. So push on is the answer. Push on, try again. It, it is very sustaining to have written things you are pleased with. That's amazingly sustaining compared to being at the beginning. So you just think, I actually have almost come to the point where I can think, well, at least I've written those books, if this new, if I can never do it again. But then I have to think, but what will I do with my days? I have no idea. So, so, so you might as well write. <laughs> so I might as well write. I mean, I, I mean, it's more than that. It's much more than that. The question of what will I do with my days isn't calm. It's 
total desperation because I still feel my happiness comes hugely from that work. So mm. it's a problem. I think it is a problem. I, I don't know how long one can go on writing novels, certainly. The poets have a long, they have longevity as long as they don't drink themselves to romantic oblivion or anything. They, they, but it's, there are not that many novelists who go on writing well into their 70s, actually. There's the, I know everybody, of course, Penelope Fitzgerald, but she had, a, she had such a backup of not having done it for so many years. Yes, yes. Um, so... Yeah. Well, why do you think that is then? What because, do you just think people get tired? Yeah, because I think it's, such it's an partly the sheer stamina of it. I think you get out of touch with what's what the world is somehow. I mean, I'm oh, very grateful to have all those children because that keeps you in touch with it. But you're just you're very. I mean, it's very interesting. My my other huge star in my firmament is Elizabeth Bowen, and some of her late novels. I don't like her. Well, what, well, maybe just one of them is not as good. That feels awkward and mannered and uncomfortable. But actually the last one, Eva Trout, is weird as weird can be. And, but anyway, anyway, and this is true of Elizabeth Taylor as well, writing at the same time, both of them, when they published in the 60s, were reviewed as if, what's this old stuff you know this tinkling of the teacups so ladylike when we have Jean-Paul Sartre kind of thing we have a perspective on that now certainly yes. in my case rather pick up an Elizabeth Bowen than a Jean-Paul Sartre you know a thousand, yes. a thousand a, times a topic that it comes up in free love in fact this uh rather yeah. pompous intellectualism um so, so that, so, but it is, it is that sense that one, there might just be a slippage between your, your, your sentences, your what do I sound like, how do I see, and and the world, and that mm. is part of growing old. So, I think that's so interesting. Just going back to this idea of the domestic, just for a second, just got a couple of questions left, us, and then I'll let you go. Yes, this idea of the domestic that your friend so helpfully pointed out early in your in your nascent career, um, which now you know you are you are um, very 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 good at and very well known for doing very well. How do you feel about that viewpoint now? I mean, actually, you know, free love is is sort of about women and their constraints. I wonder how you feel about this constraint for female writers that you know there are some things that we're supposed to be better at and that you know you get this sort of women's fiction stuff and even in literary fiction this divide mm. still seems to exist about appropriate topics or you know prize giving topics and things like that yeah. do you think that you've broken ground there a little bit or do you think that this continues to be a problem for female writers I don't know I think the problem's probably changed. I think, I mean, I mean, in a way, I applaud not the books that aren't domestic. I have no crusade to say that fiction should be this kind of representation. It is just, it's the thing I do. It's the thing I have to say, and that's not a choice. There is no choice about what you write. That's, that's a really interesting discovery. You don't have a choice. Shall I be the kind of writer who writes about, you know, French political exiles in the 1870s, or shall I write about... No, it, it isn't a choice. You just have to find the thing that is yours. So that's, So in a way, it feels to me too parochial in a sense. I, I think it's a... Is it a 
problem it's just it's a feature of realist fiction which after all has only existed really in in the forms we have it now and the, the fineness to which it's been brought by great writers it's really only 200 years old you know not fiction before that was magnificent but different this thing this domestic thing is not that old and it is parochial in its nature and I've always wanted that word parochial which can be used in a derogatory sense I really don't mean it I mean it I I love the parish the small the the, the how is it done what did they have for tea what did it feel like to be trapped inside that dress or that morning suit you know but but one has to also recognize that there is a big world out there and and that there are other more drastic stories that need telling so to speak so mm, what where, where where are we going where we're going with the domestic and whether it's demeaned yes. and and, and you, yeah do you think that that view of it persists in some way i mean there are quite a lot of readers of yours who insist that you would have won more prizes if you if if the domestic didn't still inhabit this slightly weird place in in writing I never even long listed for the book but I don't even, I didn't I didn't even listen this year I didn't I actually someone said to me after that <laughs> I said oh no has the list come out well, I mean, lots of people think, obviously, that you should have been long-listed and more, uh, and I am definitely among them. But what what do you think that, that I, is why? I kind of think I, I think it's just awkward, and I've passed a point, and now people think, oh, she's she's what she is, and it's old-fashioned, and I, I don't know. I, I don't care that much about that, but maybe I should, I should care for... Genuinely, I, the readers I have, I love it. I What a miracle. What a, what a joy. I, now, I genuinely feel that. Half of the answer to your question is, at its best, my hope, my, my aspiration for the best kind of parochial writing is that it yearns to something other. I mean, free love isn't just about Phyllis's feelings. That The scene that is the crux of the book is the night when her lover, Nicky, who's a casual lefty, you know, he's a total lefty, he's a totally radical young man, but one knows he'll sort of, he's going to be a publisher when he grows up. I know that. <laughs> anyway, he's he's there and he's he's sort of given her the small change of critique. The Vietnam War is filthy. The men who control the world and think they're so sane and right. The world is insane and it's cruel and it's brutal. And he for him, it's commonplace. And she sits up this very ordinary, non-intellectual, not very educated, perhaps even in some ways not very intelligent, although intelligence, what is that she she sits up all for an hour or two in the cold on her own. He falls asleep. And she is, lets that new thought and way of seeing the world inside her. And she thinks about the tele reports on the Vietnam War that she's watched. And she thinks, I trusted the men. I can remember this as a child thinking, oh, well, but the, the nice man telling the story knows that it's all right. I remember thinking that, and that's what she's thought is a 40-year-old, which is a bit, you know, she's been silly. And she wakes up. And I, I do want to always have, and I think the best domestic fiction always aspires to this, have the world pushing in on that not safe domestic space, which is mm. fragile and provisional and flawed. Mm. Yes, 
yes and I think it, the book does that very well and I think all your books even with their less obvious sort of geopolitical um, issues also do that they're not existing in this sort of um, microcosm they you know it's okay well, um, well that's lovely to hear you say that um, what do you think is really important for writers to know in order to improve? Because you spent a long time doing it. <laughs> you've mm. talked about the difference mm. between these sort of, I think you've called them mm. bad books before. And then, you know, and then this, um, this one that broke out, Accidents in the Home. What, what, what do you think is, what do you think writers should learn in order to get better? It's probably, probably every case is its own story. I think that's what I learned from teaching students for years, teaching supervising different novels at Bath Spa. Each novel is its own problem and has its own solutions. Each writer is her or his own problem, has her or his own solutions. I mean, perseverance, reading, 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 finding what, when I said there is no choice, you don't choose what to write. Um, finding what you must write, finding the right terrain, finding the good story. I'm kind of old-fashioned in that I, I I'm, I'm not plotty at all like you know I'm not I, it's not that kind of plot but a good story and that means not just a good premise because everybody can find a good premise but the good follow-through and a good developments and then a good place to bring your story down you may not have all that in place when you start but 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 those that's the thing to aim for and then when you've that story sets your mind on fire you you can you can those the gates will open and the, the stuff you already know about it without knowing you know it will flow through if you enjoyed write-off please do share it with others and please 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 consider leaving a review on the itunes app which really helps other people find the podcast do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks, and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.